Well, if you've ever been to one of our evangelism training sessions here at the church, or if you've ever listened to me give some sort of lesson on apologetics, then you know that my favorite question to ask when I'm evangelizing or when I'm having an apologetic conversation is, what do you mean by that? And it's a great question. It is my favorite question by far because we live in a world in which people love to make claims without offering any backing to those claims whatsoever. So you could be having a conversation with someone and they try to sound all smart and they say, hey, listen, I know that you're a Christian, but all religions are the same. Okay, you get points with your crowd, but all you have to do is just pose my favorite question and you say, what do you mean by that? Well, because they made a claim without any backing, right? They offered no proof. Now you get to watch them scramble as they try to figure out how all religions are the same. Or another one that you'll come across quite often, you'll be talking to someone and they say, hey, listen, I feel bad for you that you're a Christian because don't you know science has disproven God? Again, they sound very intellectual, but then that's no proof. That's just a claim. There's no backing to it. Call them out on it. And you say, what do you mean by that? How? How exactly has science disproven God? You see, I really like the question because it's basically a very polite, nice way of saying, prove it. You're going to make a claim, you need to prove it. And that's exactly what Paul is anticipating his audience is going to be saying when they get done reading Romans chapter 3. After they have read Romans 1 through 3, they are going to be saying, Paul, you're going to need to prove some stuff. Because Paul has been making some pretty big claims in these chapters, hasn't he? He's been saying, hey, listen, you cannot be saved just because you are Jewish. That is not salvation. You cannot be saved because you've been circumcised. You cannot be saved through your works and your goodness. You cannot be excluded because you're a Gentile. He says salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's a new message to the Jewish audience in Rome. And so he's anticipating that they're going to say, prove it. You're going to make such claims, Paul. We need you to back it up with some proof. And so that's what he's going to do in Romans 4. He's going to prove his point, and he's going to do it in a bit of a cheeky way because he's, he's going to prove his point by appealing to things that his audience loves. And this is a, a really fun tactic. I use this in parenting all the time uh, because if I want to convince my oldest son Judah to do something, I just have to appeal to one person and one person only, and it's not daddy. It's Spider-Man, okay? <laughs> because that boy is absolutely obsessed with Spider-Man. So I'm like, hey, Judah, you know what? I need you to use the big boy potty because you know who uses the big boy potty? Spider-Man. Well, all of a sudden, we're going to the bathroom. Or Judah, I need you to pick up your toys. You know who picks up his toys? Spider-Man. Well, now we've got some movement. We've got some things going on now. It's because if Spidey does it, Judah wants to do it because that's his hero. And so Paul is going to use that same tactic in Romans 4. He is going to appeal to two heroes of the Jewish faith, Abraham and David, in order to prove one point and one point only. This is what his whole point is in this chapter, in these verses. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the point he wants to prove to his audience And he's going to appeal to Abraham and David to do it. He wants them to understand, listen, it has not been by works and now it's this way. There are people today who think that, right? 
They think there was a, a way of salvation for the Old Testament. They'll say maybe sacrifices and keeping the law. And then there's this New Testament way of salvation. And praise the Lord, we're living in the New Covenant because it's just by grace now. And Paul says that's not the case. It's always been by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so we need to be asking ourselves the same question this morning that the church in Rome would have been asking when they heard these claims. What is the proof? What is the proof of this claim? And so I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 5 again. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, we, we talk about Abraham from time to time today, but I think we forget just how much Abraham meant and means to the Jewish people. He is the patriarch of the people of God. He is the father of their nation. And the Jewish people believed that Abraham was actually perfect in all of his ways. And we know that because there were three really important books that were written uh, Jewish books that were written during the intertestamental period. Okay, that's a big word. Just means the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the intertestamental period. There are three books that were written by Jewish people, and they make a lot of claims about Abraham, and they reveal to us what they actually believed about Abraham. So this one's interesting, right? Uh, in the book of Jubilees, in Jubilees 23.10, this is what it says. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And so the Jews actually believed that Abraham accomplished and earned his right standing with God, that, that he was saved on the basis of his works and on his obedience. And so if we're going to believe this Jewish view about Abraham, then we need to ask a very simple question. What did Abraham do leading up to Genesis 15, 6, where God declares him to be righteous in his sight? What did Abraham do prior to Genesis 15, 6 to earn that declaration of righteousness? Well, this is a good question. And if you've been with us for the past two years in Genesis on Wednesday nights, you already know the answer to it, right? But for those of you who haven't been here, in Genesis, the first time we meet Abram, he is living in the land of Ur with his family. They are a bunch of pagan moon worshipers. And God is going to pick that guy to be his guy. He could have picked anyone on earth. He could have picked anyone to be his guy who was going to be the patriarch, the father of the nation. He could have picked someone like Job, right? Uh, Job was a contemporary living at the same time as Abraham. And the Bible says that Job was blameless and upright. Now, that's a pretty good pick right there. If I'm picking someone, that's going to be my guy. But no, no, God looks down and he chooses the pagan moon worshiper who's married to his half-sister and says, that's my guy. That's where we meet Abraham. 
And God, in Genesis chapter 12, calls him out of that life and tells him to go, to leave his country, leave his family, leave his kindred, leave his father's house, and go to the land that God would show him. And God made him a promise. He said, in you and in your offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And he said, go. So what does Abraham do? The perfect man of obedience. Well, he does go, but he's immediately disobedient because he doesn't leave his family behind. Who's he bring with him? Lot. He brings Lot with him. Not leaving his family behind, so Abraham is immediately disobedient. And then later, in that very same chapter, here's what happens. Abram and Sarai are going down to Egypt. And Abram looks at his wife and goes, Honey, you are absolutely gorgeous. Here's the problem, though. When we go through Egypt, everybody's going to want to marry you and take you for themselves, and they're going to kill me to do it. So here's what we're going to do. Here's my plan. As we go through, I'm just going to tell everybody, You're my sister. Sound like a good plan? Okay, that's what we're going to do. Here's the problem. God had already said, I'm going to bless every nation that blesses you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Abram should have walked through Egypt boldly and confidently, but instead he pawned his wife off as his sister so that he could save his own neck and not die. And then we come to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, the whole chapter starts with Abram trying to take matters into his own hand. He says, God, listen, I know that you made me all these promises, but could you possibly make Eliezer of Damascus my heir? And then God responds in Genesis 15, verses 4 through 6, with these amazing words. The Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now just pause one moment. Keep in mind, Abraham is 86 years old when God says this to him. Sarai is 77 years old. It's going to be a whole lot longer before they even have their first kid. Another decade. That's how old they are in this situation. Do you think in that situation they're thinking, oh yeah, we're definitely going to have our own child by natural birth. That's, that's just absolutely possible. No, it seems like an absolute impossibility to them. It, it seems like this is something that cannot be done. This is their situation in life. And yet God takes Abram outside and he says, look up at the sky. Now just imagine there are no city lights there. He's out in the wilderness in the dark of night looking up at God's creation, seeing more stars in that one moment than most of us have ever seen at any point in our entire life. And Abram is so overwhelmed by the beauty of God's creation and the power of God in creation that he thinks to himself, if God can do this, then surely he can do anything. If God can bring all of this into being from nothing, then I absolutely believe that he can give me my own son. And so in verse 6 it says, these amazing words, he believed the Lord. You're going to have your own son. Your own son is going to be your heir. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see, Abram simply believed what God said. 
He took God at his word. He believed that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And so he put his faith in God. And ultimately, Abram was believing in the Messiah who was to come. Because Abraham, he knew the creation story, right? I mean, it had been passed down from generation to generation. He knew that when man rebelled against God and ventured off into sin, God pronounced a curse upon creation. But God also promised something. He promised to eventually undo sin's curse. He promised to undo sin's curse, to restore creation, to redeem a people unto himself. And it was going to come about through an offspring. The offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Undo sin's curse and restore creation. Now, let me ask you a question. God pronounces a curse. What's the opposite of a curse? A blessing. That's right. And what does God say to Abram in Genesis 12? In you and in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Abraham recognized that when God was promising to give him descendants in his very own son, and that ultimately this son, he was going to be the one who would undo sin's curse. If the whole world was going to be blessed through this son, this is that promised offspring. And so Abraham recognized that God was going to bless him with tons of descendants, as many as the stars. But what mattered most is that one of those descendants was going to be the Messiah, the promised offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would undo sin's curse, and would restore creation to God's intended purposes. And Abraham knew this. The Bible even affirms that he knows this. In John 8, 56, Jesus himself said this. This is amazing. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. Now, he didn't see it clearly. He didn't know all the details. He didn't know how God was going to bring this about exactly. But what he did know is that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. That through a promised offspring, a Messiah, God would undo sin's curse. He would destroy the serpent. He would restore creation. He would redeem a people. He would bless the nations. And so Abram believed God. He didn't have righteousness of his own. But God counted his faith as righteousness. And so, I mean, you just look at the Genesis story. You look at Abraham's story. We ask again, what did Abraham do prior to Genesis 15, 6 to earn or deserve that declaration of righteousness from God? Nothing. Not a thing. He gained nothing according to the flesh. He did nothing to deserve that declaration, to earn that declaration. Abraham simply believed God. And though he lacked righteousness of his own, his faith was counted as righteousness. And that word counted, you can circle it in your Bible or underline it. It's an important word. It occurs over 10 times in Romans chapter 4. And it's a banking term in the Greek. It means to credit to an account, and it has to do with a change of status. So it means to credit to an account, and it has to do with a change of status. So just to kind of help you think about this, uh, maybe the nerdiest thing about myself is I really enjoy chess. My wife gives me a hard time about that all the time. She would say I'm obsessed with it, but, you know, I tend not to disagree with her. So anyways, I enjoy playing chess. There's a site called chess.com. 
And they let you have a free membership, and there's a bunch of, you know, different levels of membership that you can pay for. So I got an email one day from Chess.com saying that they had gifted me a diamond membership. That's the highest membership they offer. So I was thinking, this is some spam email, you know, like this, this, <laughs> this can't be right. I didn't enter some sort of giveaway. I didn't do anything. Like, I don't know why I received this, but, but I, I didn't believe it. You know, they said they were giving me this new account status as a gift. And so I go to chess.com. I look at my account and sure enough, it wasn't spam. I look and no longer did I have a free membership, but they had changed my account status. I now had the status of a diamond member, not because I paid for it, but because they had credited it to my account. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here with righteousness and salvation. He says, you don't earn this. You don't apply for this. You don't submit an application and say, here's what I have to offer. Can you, you know, give me this righteousness now? It's not something you earn or deserve. He says, if you trust in Jesus, God will credit righteousness to your account as a gift, and you have a new status before God. You stand right before him because of what Jesus has done for you. And it's important that we remember this because keep in mind, the Jewish people thought Abraham earned his salvation. Abraham was perfect in all of his ways, they said. He was obedient from the moment that God called him, they said. And, and Paul says, listen, Abraham was a sinner just like us. Abraham was not perfect. Abraham did not have righteousness of his own. Abraham simply believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He declared Abraham to be righteous in his sight by grace, through faith, in the Messiah who was to come, and it came as a gift. You see, here's why Paul is pointing us to Abraham. Here's what he wanted the church in Rome to understand and what he wants us to understand today. No one can be good enough to deserve salvation. It's an important point that we need to remember, folks. That's the whole reason he's appealing to Abraham. It's because the Jewish people idolized him. They thought if anyone could earn salvation, it's Abraham. If anyone ever has earned salvation, it's Abraham. He was perfect. He was always obedient. He was the man. And Paul says, I think you need to reread Genesis <laughs> because that is not at all how the Bible describes him. Paul says, listen, Abraham, he was a great man, but he was a sinner. He was disobedient. He was a failure. He did not earn or deserve or achieve. He received righteousness and salvation by grace through faith in Christ as a gift. You cannot be good enough to deserve or earn salvation. And what gets me is when you tell people this today, you go to anyone in our world and you say, hey, listen, I know that you think you're a pretty good person, you do good things, but I just need you to understand, you, you can never be good enough to earn it. <laughs> you can never be good enough and you can never do enough to earn or deserve salvation. You know what the most common response is? You refuse to believe it and you just keep on trying anyways, right? Isn't that exactly how our world responds? They don't believe it. Because there's not much our world can agree on, but pretty much everyone in our world agrees good people get rewarded, don't they? That's why everybody believes in karma. If you do good to, to people, good will come back to you. If you do bad to people, bad things will happen to you. They believe that if you're good and you do enough good things, then you will get to go to heaven if such a place exists, they say. That's what the world believes. In fact, that's what every religion other than Christianity teaches. 
Every religion apart from Christianity teaches that heaven and salvation are earned and come to those who deserve them. And then here is the Christian faith. And the Bible says salvation comes to the ungodly, to those who do not deserve it, to the bad people. In fact, you can never be good enough to earn it or deserve it through your works or your obedience. That's what Paul is saying. You can't be good enough. That cuts against the grain of everything our world believes. And here's what gets me. Just to, just to be honest with you, as a pastor, here's what gets me. Is that I know there are people in here right now who are thinking, Preacher, we know all this. <laughs> we know that we're not saved by our works. I know that. I would never say I'm saved by my works. Preacher, we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that, so move on already. We're trying to get to KFC before Rock Springs, so let's, you know, let's move it along. But here's my issue, and here's what gets me. It's the fact that I know that while there are many people today who would say that they know you're not saved by your works, I also know that deep down, in their heart of hearts, they believe they have to do something. Right? You know I'm right on this. They will say with their head all day long, I know that I'm not saved by my works. I know that it's only in Christ. But in their heart of hearts, deep down, they believe I have to do something. I have to contribute something. I have to do this. I have to do that. And if I can do all these things, then maybe I can be sure of my salvation one day. And trust me, if you are doing that, you're not trusting in Christ alone. You're actually trusting in your works. You're trying to earn righteousness through your obedience to the law, through your religious activities, through your church attendance. And the more active you think that you are, the more things you do, the, the more you know, people that you try to help out, the more good deeds you see in your life, the more you assure yourself, I must be saved because look at all I'm doing. And so you end up trusting in your works rather than Christ alone. You see, that's the, the problem that I see in the church today is that people will say something because they say they know it, but in their heart, they refuse to believe. They think they have to do something, especially to secure their salvation. So let me just say it like this. On September 2nd, 2016, okay, just making sure she knew what that was. September 2nd, 2016, after Anna and I had exchanged vows, Pastor Chris Walker declared us to be married. And what a glorious day that was. He declared us to be married, and at that point, life was never the same. We were no longer two individuals. We were one. We had a totally new status. We were no longer single. He declared us to have a new status, the status of married. Now, let me ask you a question. If after he declared us to have that new status as married, if I took my wife on a date every single week, and we want to do that, so we're accepting applications for babysitters. If you want to help out, you just let us know. But if I were to take her on a date every single week, if I were to buy her flowers every single week, if I were to lavish her with gifts and service and compliments every single week, would that make us any more married than we already were? No. If I never did any of those things at all, would that make us any less married? 
than we already were. No. Now, listen to me, folks, especially men. If you value your marriage and treasure your marriage, you will show love for your spouse in a variety of ways. But, but understand this, that declaration of that new status as married, it stands on its own and is totally unaffected by you doing something after that. And in the same way, Christians, you need to understand you cannot be more or less saved than you are the moment God declares you justified in His sight. Isn't that good news? You can never be more saved after that, and you can never be less saved after that. When God declares you to be righteous in His sight by grace through faith in Christ, that new status stands on its own. You don't need to do anything after that to be more saved. You need not do anything after that to add to that declaration, to give it more merit, or to prove yourself worthy of it. The evidence that it is true salvation will be seen in your love for God and others, in your desire to do God's will, in your commitment to the church, and in your faithfulness to God. But hear me clearly on this, church. Just as works can do nothing to earn your salvation, works can do nothing to secure your salvation. Do you understand that, church? Just as works can do nothing to earn your salvation, works can do nothing to secure your salvation. Salvation is all of grace. From beginning to end, it is grace upon grace upon grace. And the reason Paul appeals to Abraham, the so-called perfect, obedient man, is because he wants us to know that no one can be good enough that he deserves to be saved. No one can be good enough that he says, God must save me because I have earned it. No one will be ever be able to get to glory and be able to say, I deserve to be here. This is, this is what I've earned. This is my reward for all my goodness and my good works. The only people who are declared righteous in the eyes of God are those who know that they are not righteous. And so they turn to Jesus and trust in him alone for their righteousness. They are those who say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. No one who is a true Christian will ever boast of any part of his faith. The only true Christians are those who even throughout their walk with God through this life of faith, they are not those who boast of themselves and what they are doing, but they simply say, grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. The only true Christians are those who, when they get to glory, they will not stand before God and assure themselves that this is what they deserve. They are those who will bow the knee before Him and proclaim with the angels, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Those are the true Christians. And so if you want to be declared righteous in God's sight, you must recognize that you are ungodly and unrighteous. And you must recognize that you can do nothing to earn your salvation or deserve your salvation. You must turn from your sin and your attempts to merit God's favor. And like Abraham, you must believe. Not work. Believe. Believe that God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Believe that Jesus obtained righteousness for you through his life of perfect obedience. Believe that Jesus' death for you was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin. 
Believe that Jesus' resurrection is the proof that, Jesus, that God will raise you up to through faith in Christ. This is Paul's point. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot be good enough to deserve it. But, very quickly, church, this is what he does. He's going to go from Abraham to David to show the reverse side of that same coin that he's talking about here. So look with me at verses 6-8 through eight very quickly. Paul says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're going to the two heroes of the Jewish faith here. Abraham and David. Abraham, the man of perfect obedience, they said. And then David, the warrior king. The writer of many psalms. The king of Israel. The leader of armies. The one who slayed the giant Goliath. The one who was called the man after God's own heart. You look at David and you would say, surely this is a man who is favored by God. But then something happened, didn't it? Was David always perfectly obedient throughout his whole life? Come on now. He was called the man after God's own heart. Surely this guy couldn't mess up. Until that late afternoon. He's walking on the rooftops in the late afternoon. And he sees a woman bathing. Bathsheba. And he's so overcome with lust for her that he actually sends his messengers to go and get her, bring her to him. She tells him that she's a married woman. He doesn't care. He sleeps with her and then sends her on his way. Man after God's own heart. Short time after that, Bathsheba sends word back to David that she is pregnant. Uh-oh. Big mistake, right? Now David has a problem. He has to figure out how he's going to cover up his sin. He comes up with a great idea. He says, I'm going to get her husband Uriah the Hittite, and I'm going to bring him back. He was at war, a war that David should have been fighting, by the way. Funny chapter there in 2 Samuel. It says, now in the time when kings went to war, David was walking on the rooftops looking at naked women. That was David. Okay, so he says, I'm going to get Uriah to come home from war, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to encourage him to sleep with his wife, and then he'll think that the baby is his. I'm a genius. So he tries to do that. What he didn't count on is the fact that Uriah was a righteous man. And he said, listen, I cannot indulge in such pleasures while I've got brothers and friends fighting on the front lines, dying. So I'm just going to sleep over here. Y'all can do your thing, but I'm over here and I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Well, that's a problem for David. So the next day he sends Uriah back to war and then he sends his messengers after him saying, tell the commander of armies to put Uriah the Hittite on the front lines. It was a death sentence. He knew that Uriah would be killed in war. This is the length to which he was willing to go to cover his own sin, to make up for his own sin. And this was a gross, terrible, heinous sin against the Lord, against Bathsheba, and against Uriah. And when Nathan the prophet confronted David about this sin, David was cut to the core. He was grieved 
over his own sin, so grieved that he wrote Psalm 51. Go home and read that this afternoon. It is one of the most beautiful psalms in the entire Bible, one of the most moving psalms, one of the best pictures of repentance in the entire Bible. And David wrote it after he had been convicted of his sin with Bathsheba. And after David had repented of his sin and mourned over his sin, this is what happened. Nathan the prophet came to him again and said these words, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then I want you to notice the beauty of these words. Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. How amazing is that? David recognizes that he is a terrible sinner. He has done a terrible thing. Borderline raped a woman and killed her husband to cover up his own sin. And he is convicted of that. He is grieved by that. He knows that he is a terrible sinner. He recognizes his depravity. He recognizes he deserves nothing except for God's wrath and condemnation. He knows that he is totally unworthy of God's mercy and love and favor. He knows there is nothing good in him for God to love. And he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, yes, you have. But God has put away your sin. And you shall not die. You shall not die. And then Paul here in Romans 4 quotes from the words of Psalm 32. Most scholars believe that David wrote Psalm 32 after God had forgiven him of his sin with Bathsheba. And so after he had been forgiven by the Lord, this forgiveness that he did not deserve, by the way, this forgiveness that he did not earn or merit, by the way, this gift for forgiveness which was totally by grace alone, through faith alone, comes to David and the response of his heart is to say, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And David says, blessed. Praise the Lord. You see, the reason that Paul is pointing us to David is because he wants us to understand, church, that God's grace is greater than all our sin. That's the whole reason he's appealing to David here. He points to Abraham to show us nobody can be good enough to earn salvation or deserve salvation. He points to David to say, and in the same way, no one can be too bad for salvation. No sinner is too far gone for God. No sin is too much for God. You cannot outsin the cross of Christ. If David couldn't do it, I promise you, you cannot do it. I mean, just think about who's writing this letter. The Apostle Paul, right? Before he was Paul, what was his name? Saul. And he was a blasphemer. He was well known as a persecutor of the church. He was well known for killing Christians. He personally oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen. He himself described himself as the chief of all sinners. He looked at his life and he viewed himself as being the absolute scum of the earth. The worst person who's ever lived. 
But Jesus didn't appear to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and go, hey, listen, a couple things we need to clear up. One, I'm Jesus. I am real. You need to stop persecuting me. Uh, number two, there are going to be tons of people with me in glory. And yes, they have done some bad stuff, but whew, nothing compared to what you have done. I mean, you make them look like absolute saints. You make them look like they are sinless. They've done some bad stuff, but look at you. You've done too much. You cannot come. That's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus comes and appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul is so overwhelmed by the beauty of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel message that he repents of his sins and he turns to faith in the one that he had been persecuting. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he lays down his life for this Jesus. Saul was not too far gone for Jesus. He had not sinned too much for Jesus. God's grace was sufficient for Saul. Paul was not barred from receiving salvation due to too much sin or due to being too bad. Paul could not out the cross of Christ. And listen to me, church, neither can you. God's grace is greater than all your sin. And we need to remember this today. Because I cannot tell you how many people there are in our world today who feel as though they are too far gone for God. They, they look at their lives. They look at the amount of sin in their lives. They look at the people that they have hurt, the lives that they have destroyed. They look at just how bad they have been and they feel totally unlovable. They feel totally unsavable. They feel like they are barred from being forgiven from, by God. And they are barred from entering into glory because they are too far gone. I've had people come and talk to me and say, Pastor, you just don't know. You don't know what I've done. You would be shocked to hear the things I can tell you that I have done. There's no way that God could love someone like me. There's no way that God could forgive someone like me. There's no way that God could save someone like me. I have messed up too much. And everybody who is struggling with that today needs to hear that God's grace is greater than all your sin. But pastor, you don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't need to know. It doesn't matter what you have done. You turn from your sins. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You will be justified. You will be with Him in glory forever. You cannot out the cross of Christ. Your sin is not more powerful than the saving grace of God in Christ. His grace is greater. Your sin actually makes you a perfect candidate for salvation. Because Jesus said in Matthew 9.13, I came not to call the righteous. But who, church? The sinners. That's who I want. That's who Jesus says He wants. Salvation doesn't come to those who deserve it. It doesn't come to those who earn it. It doesn't come to those who are perfect. It doesn't come to those who have everything all together. Salvation comes to the broken. It comes to the bruised. It comes to the marred. It comes to the one with the filthy rags and the dirty past. And the great news is you don't even have to clean yourself up. God doesn't say, hey, listen, glad you're interested in salvation. If you could just get this right, clean up this area of your life, stop doing these things, start doing these things, then you come back to me. Then we can talk about salvation. He says, you don't clean yourself up. 
You come to me today. You leave your sin behind. You turn from your sin. You put your faith in Jesus today. He will make you white as snow. God's got you covered. His grace is sufficient for you. He says, come to me just as you are. Let the sinners come. There is salvation and forgiveness for you in Christ today. And I know there are Christians who need to hear this message today as well. Because I can't tell you how many Christians think today and honestly believe that every time they sin, they need to get re-saved. Every time they sin, every time they mess up, every time they start to stumble again, they need to get re-saved as if they lose their salvation every time they mess up. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly on this, okay? A lot of stuff to take away today, but take this away with you. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already. Understand? Everybody get that? If you could lose your salvation, you have already. If you could lose your salvation, most of us don't make it past day one. I'd venture to say none of us make it past day one. I know that I wouldn't. I'd be saved that day, and then later that day, I would have lost that salvation already. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already. And, and this is what Paul wants us to understand, that, that when we sin, when we make a mistake, it doesn't mean that we have lost our status as justified because it doesn't rely on our works, does it, church? It doesn't depend on our works. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Yeah, there are going to be many people who proclaim to be Christians, who profess to be saved, who, who have never actually experienced true salvation, and one day they will walk away from the faith. But those who have true salvation will persevere to the end. Your, your walk with Christ is not going to be perfect. You are going to fail and mess up, but every time you fail and mess up, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. The reason that David is in glory today even after such a heinous sin, is not because of his devotion to God or the strength of his faith. The reason that David did not fall away from the faith is because God himself refused to let David go. He refused to let him go. His salvation was secure, not because of his hold on God, but because of God's hold on him. Jesus says in John chapter 10, all my sheep are in my hand and no one will take them from me. No one can pluck them out of my hands. That includes you. You are not strong enough to remove yourself from the hold of God and praise God for that. He has got us in his hands and he will not let us go. This is what Paul wanted the church in Rome to understand. He want, it's what God wants us to understand today. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot be good enough to earn it or deserve it. So many of you this morning, you need to stop relying on your works. You need to turn from trusting in your works, turn from striving to accomplish what you cannot accomplish, and put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Rely not on your works or on your goodness, but on Jesus Christ alone. And not only can you not be too good, probably the best news for most of us here is you can't be too bad. You are not too far gone for God. Your sin is not too much for God. God's grace comes to the unworthy, to the sinners, 
to the unclean. And so you need to stop thinking that you need to clean your life up before turning it over to God. You need to stop making excuses and trying to get it all together before coming to God. Stop thinking that your sin has made you unsavable. Leave your sin today. Turn from your sin today. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. God delights in saving the chief of sinners. You can be right with God today through faith in Christ. This is how God saves sinners. Church, this is how God has always saved sinners. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? Let's pray.